Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, and also our friends at the Hangar in Montana, and our friends at Arco, Idaho, and also at Purpose Church in Rancho Cucamonga. It sounds like we had some Montana people here. Is that right there? Oh, my goodness. The Todds are here. The legendary Todds. How awesome is that? Our campus pastor and her husband and family, the Todds, are here from Montana. So you came down. I bet you it's warmer in Montana than it is here this morning, you know. As a matter of fact, it is warmer back in Homer, New York, where uh, I pastored before uh, than it is today. So awesome to have the Todds here, and they're doing such a great job there in, in Montana. And Purpose Church and Ranch Cucamonga, we are so glad that we're all together now uh, to study, do our study here this morning. Now, we've been doing this unusual little series here, a little bit of uh, biblical teaching and also a little bit of history mixed into it as well, called More Than Just Christmas Carols. More Than Just Christmas Carols. And what we've done is we've taken three of our favorite Christmas carols, uh, three of the most prominent ones, and we've looked at the historical background, the biblical background, and the theological background of these uh, famous Christmas carols. And last Sunday, we did O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, tonight, as I mentioned, we're going to do Silent Night, and uh, we're going to have the candle lighting. And so if you didn't get a chance to do that Christmas Eve, or if you'd like to uh, do it again, I can't do it too many times. Uh, Candlelighting, singing um, uh, with the candlelight, passing of the candlelight tonight at Claremont, uh, singing Silent Night. And now today we're going to talk about Hark the Herald Angels Sing. How many of you, this is in your top five of Christmas carols? You guys, top five, Hark the Herald uh, Angels Sing. And it's really interesting, some of the history behind it, that I was just fascinated um, to, to discover here in the last couple of weeks. Now, one word that will encourage you right at the beginning about the background to all the Christmas carols, not just Hark the Herald Angels Sing, is we tend to have this feeling that things are always going downhill. It's kind of the good old days theory that we just think uh, things are always becoming less Christian or uh, Christmas is becoming more and more secularized. How many of you have been distressed by the secularization of Christmas? So we have this tendency to think that it's always that way and it'll always continue to be a downhill spiral. But actually when you study history, that is not true, whether for Christmas or for the whole Christian faith. And it gives us hope for today. There have been periods of downhill, but then there have been revival that causes things to go uphill once again. And we can have the hope of revival not only for Christmas, but for Christianity in America as well. We can have that same hope because it's happened in the past and it'll happen in the future as well. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In the early 1600s, early 1600s, Christmas had fallen into such disrepute in the British Empire, in England, uh, it was basically a drinking holiday. That's all it was. You know, it's kind of like, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but I can say this because I'm half Irish myself. It was kind of like St. Patrick's Day. I mean, I don't want to offend the Irish. As a matter of fact, give me some other examples before the next service so I can offend other people equally with. I myself, but I mean, basically, what's the point of St. Patrick's Day other than drinking? You know, it's kind of a drinking holiday. And that's the way Christmas had become. It was known for drunkenness and depravity and rioting. I mean, it was just a, a day of debauchery, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. As a matter of fact, it was so scary, a holiday, that decent people st stayed indoors. You wouldn't want to be out on the streets on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day because it, there was rioting and drunken rioting and debauchery going on. So decent people stayed indoors uh, for Christmas. As a matter of fact, 
it got so bad that in 1644, it was banned by the British Parliament. A law was passed by the British Parliament in 1644 that you could not celebrate Christmas in any public way. Now, it wasn't because they were anti-Christian or anti-Christmas. It was because they were pro-Christian and pro-Christmas. And the members of Parliament thought they are dishonoring Jesus in the way they celebrate, uh, the nation is celebrating Christmas. So they put a ban on it, not because they were against it, but because they were for it. And so they did this law outlawing Christmas because it had fallen into such disrepute. Danaker writes, Christians eventually decided to take back the true meaning of the season. Christmas carols were one of the tools they used. They soon found that these songs had a powerful effect on people. See, back then, there basically were no Christmas carols. There was a few, like we talked about last Sunday, the earliest Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, written in 800 A.D. But other than a handful, like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, there were hardly any Christmas carols. And so they began to write Christmas carols as a tool to re-Christianize Christmas. That was the purpose of these Christmas carols. Now, here's one example. Uh, in a great time of revival in England, uh, revival was led by three people, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, and George Whitfield, that were going to be characters in our story here today. And about 100 years later, Charles Wesley, in 1737, 40 years before the American Revolution, wrote, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He wrote over 6,000 hymns in his lifetime. So he was basically the musician of the great revivals of the 1700s. George Whitfield, that we'll meet in a moment, was the preacher of the great revivals of the 1700s. And then John Wesley, Charles's brother, was the organizer. And every great revival needs three types of people. They need preaching, they need music, and it needs organizing. And John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, he was the great organizer. And Charles Wesley was the great musician, and George Whitfield was the great preacher. So he wrote over 6,000 hymns in his lifetime. He wrote music constantly, even while he was on horseback. And they spent a lot of time on horseback back then. Even while he was on horseback, he'd be writing uh, hymns. He was 32 years old when he wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it was during his quiet time. So he has a quiet time alone with God, and he wrote down the words of this song. Now, I just want to give an encouragement to mothers uh, here today. You can change the world through the influence of a godly mother. It is a powerful, powerful thing. And I want to say a special word of encouragement, because research shows that about two-thirds of women in America experience depression during the holidays. And I don't know why that is, but my guess might be is that the holidays expose the gap between our ideal family and our real family. Have you ever noticed that? We all idealize our family, and we think it's supposed to be like a Norman Rockwell portrait. And then we experience real family on, on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. How many, well, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands on this, but, you know, how many of you had a moment on Christmas Day? Uh, just a moment. may not have been an extensive thing, but just, just one of those moments that reveals the reality of your family rather than the ideal of your family. And so two-thirds of women go through depression. Maybe that's one of the reasons that contributes to it. But I want to encourage you, you moms, I want to tell you, you change the world. Uh, we praise God for you. And here's an example is Susanna Wesley. Um, Charles was the youngest of 18 children. She had 18. She looks good for a woman that's had 18 children, doesn't she? I know it's a painting, but still, you know, she looks great. 18. Now, the sad thing was, 
is back in that day, so many children died in the early moments or right after childbirth, and only 11 of her 18 children survived uh, childhood. And so seven died and 11 survived. But she was this incredible woman of prayer. There is nothing more powerful than a praying woman, a praying mother, a praying grandmother. Incredible woman of prayer. And one of her sons was Charles Wesley, the great musician of the great revivals of the 1700s. Another, she was also the mother of John Wesley, who I mentioned was the great organizer of the revivals and uh, formed and founded the Methodist Church. Now, um, Charles Wesley had this passion to sing words of theology. And as a little boy, his mom, Susanna, would require him to sing Scripture as a way of memorizing Scripture prior to breakfast. So you wouldn't get breakfast until you sang some Scriptures in order to memorize them. And it's kind of like Awana. Boy, I tell you, if, you, if your children aren't in Awana, consider it as a New Year's resolution in 2016. These kids memorize like sponges. They memorize so much Scripture at, at, at a young age. And so that's what she would do with Charles. And she would teach him uh, to music, to help him to memorize it. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'm going to start out, and I hope it starts as a solo, but you join me very, very fast, okay? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Now I know my ABCs. Aren't you very proud of me? I don't know. There are, there are regional differences with the last part of it uh, that we all learned. Um, in seminary, they taught us the Hebrew alphabet to Yankee Doodle went to town. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, and Wow, and Zion. Haith, Taith, Yod. And you can see that I am trying to... I, 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 I went to a very sophisticated seminary. I want you to know, this was, this was a very, very sophisticated school. And, and, and so you'll see the quote there by Eric Routley. He says, these hymns were composed in order that men and women might sing their way, not only into experience, but also into knowledge. So the Christmas carols were written, and the hymns and praise songs are written, not just so we can experience God, but so that we can learn certain things about God. Now, we need to think of creative ways to get God's Word uh, into our heart. And let me give you another example of this. As we enter into 2016, as you leave today at the Resource Center, there are a couple of Bible reading programs. And you can go online, and there's like so many different types of programs. But let me just mention a couple of them that are two of my favorites. Uh, the blue one will help you if you take about 15 minutes a day, you can read through the entire Bible. But if you've never done this before, I would really recommend this one right here. What is that, like white or gray? Uh, get a hold of this one where you read through the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. I think Psalms and Proverbs, you read through those two books twice uh, in, in the year. But read through the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs uh, through in 2016. And it, it'll only take about five minutes of reading a day. Let me just suggest a little habit for you for 2016 that'll change your life. Take 15 minutes a day. If you're a morning person, do it in the morning. If you're a middle-of-the-day person, do it on lunch hour. If you're an evening person, do it before you go to bed at night. But take five minutes to read the chapter from the New Testament, Psalms or Proverbs. So five minutes to read. Five minutes to think about how what you read applies to your life. And then five minutes uh, to pray. Five minutes to read it, five minutes, how does this apply to my life, five minutes to pray about it. Fifteen minutes a day, and that little habit will change your life. If you've never had a regular time in God's Word, start with that. Fifteen minutes a day will change your life in 2016. Okay, what can Hark the Herald Angels Sing teach us? Six things. Number one, Jesus deserves our worship. 
Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now, this is another little fascinating historical tidbit. Originally, the first line was, um, you'll see it there in front of you, hark how all the welkin rings. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly in Old English. Hark how, how the welkin rings. This word welkin was used 18 times in Shakespeare's plays. It was a, wor- a word from that time period. It means the vault of heaven. It means the expanse of heaven. When you, when you go out and look at a starry sky, that's considered the welkin. The vault of heaven is singing praises as Jesus is born. It comes from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, along comes another great leader from that time, George Whitfield. He was a bartender who turned into a preacher. And, uh, and he was the, gra- the greatest preacher of that time. Uh, Benjamin Franklin writes that when he preached in America, he came to America to preach. And Benjamin Franklin, you know, back then they didn't have sound systems, okay? They weren't wimps like we are today in need of a sound system. They just did it with their voices. And Benjamin Franklin said that he went to hear Whitfield. He climbed up into a tree a mile away from where he was preaching. And he said it was so clear and so powerful it almost knocked him out of the tree. Mile away, uh, this guy. Now, he's a friend of Wesley. Whitfield didn't ask for permission from Wesley, but he changed the first word of the song from Hark How All the Welkin Rings to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Wesley was hugely offended by this. He was enraged. Now, he considered it unbiblical. He said the angels, the Bible never says that they sang. It says that the angels spoke words of praise. The heavens sing, but the angels spoke their words of praise. So he considered it unbiblical. The angels were not singing. Also, Whitfield thought it was too long and boring, so he cut the final four verses off of it, okay? Didn't ask his permission to do it. Now, here's the thing. Whitfield's version of the Christmas carol took off. It became hugely popular. Now, unfortunately, Wesley wasn't able to say, thank you, friend, for cutting it, making it shorter so people liked it better. That's always popular in churches, you know, to to cut those final four verses off of a 20-verse hymn is a hugely popular thing. He says, so not only did he make it popular in that way, but a a catchier, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is much catchier than Hark How All the Welkin Rings. He didn't see it as a good thing. He was just offended by it. Now, you'll see the story that this controversy is based on. Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, that's why Wesley wanted it to be uh, that, that way, the other way, glory to God in, in, in the highest, glory to God in the highest heaven. Now, a word about angels. Um, and, and I probably need to do a series on this. I did a series years ago, like a five or six part series on angels. I probably need to bring that back once again because they are such a powerful encouragement to us. You know, we often just ignore them or, or haven't been taught on them. It's really pastor's fault that we don't talk about them more. 
But you know, when you're going through a dark time in your life, if you're going through a discouraging time, do you know that God sends angels to come alongside you and to strengthen you? And that when you are, you know, like they did with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you know that angels are here right now to protect you, to encourage you, to strengthen you when you're going through a difficult time? They're created by God. They're messengers, warriors, and worshipers. They can appear or disappear in a moment. And so they appear in Bethlehem to announce the birth of Jesus. Now, we always picture them in white, lacy, silky garments. And I needed to be careful because the head of our costuming was sitting right on the front row at 8.30, okay, for our Christmas program. But she gave me a hard time afterwards, and so it, it, we're, we're cool. We're cool with that. And I said to Elaine Grisso, I said, Elaine, we really should put them in army fatigues. That's what they ought to be in. I don't think that'd be as popular an image. But really, if you want angels, if you want to contemporize angels, what they, should, what they really were meant to be, they should be in uniform, army fatigues. Because every time angels show up, uh, people are terrified. The shepherds were terrified. The first thing angels always say when they show up is, don't be afraid. Because I know my appearance is frightening to you. So don't be afraid. So an angel of the Lord announces the birth of Jesus. So they're worshiping God in heaven at the birth of Jesus. And basically what happens is we just pull the curtain back a little bit. And, as, and, and, and you see all of heaven worshiping uh, God in this way as, as Jesus is born. Now you'll see some of the words in this uh, uh, Christmas carol that are used to describe Jesus, that he deserves our worship. Words like King, Christ, Everlasting Lord, Son of Righteousness, Prince of Peace, Godhead, Incarnate Deity. Number two, we can learn from this Christmas carol that Jesus reconciled God and sinner, sinners. Jesus reconciled God and sinners. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. This word reconciled means to put an end to hostility and for an enemy to become a friend. To put an end to hostility, and because of our sin, we are enemies of God, the Bible says, but to reconcile us to God, so now we are no longer God's enemy, which is a bad place to be, into being a friend of God, which is a good place to be. Uh, Colossians 1, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So at the very first, when Christ is born, he's on his way to the cross. The plan from Bethlehem, from day one, was for him to go to the cross so that we could be reconciled. Notice Paul uses the word reconcile four times, just in these two verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus came to be a reconciler, and he gives us that follow him the ministry of being reconcilers. Think of that for a moment. We always say this at Purpose Church, that God's assignment for us is to go to heaven and to take our oikos with us there. Oikos, Greek word for household, 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence. God is reconciled us to himself, and then we are given a ministry, 2016, the most important thing you can do in the coming year is to influence, have a message of reconciliation, a ministry of reconciliation 
to your 8 to 15 to help them be reconciled to God as well. Your assignment from God for the coming year, the most important thing we're supposed to do in the next year is to make sure we're on our way to heaven and that we're taking our oikos, our family and friends, uh, with us there as well. Uh, The picture here is, remember the Berlin Wall uh, that was up for 28 years, separating communist East Berlin from uh, from free uh, West Berlin. It was up for 28 years. A hundred people died trying to cross the Berlin Wall during that 28-year period uh, from communism into freedom. And then uh, the wall came down in 1989. Well, this is the picture that he broke down the wall between us and God, and now he calls on us to break down the walls between us, between other people and God, and between other people uh, and ourselves. Now, one little uh, P.S. uh, to this story. Uh, Wesley never, ever restored his relationship with Whitfield. Uh, He was upset about the changes to his song for the rest of his life. Now, here's a guy that wrote this beautiful line, God and sinners reconciled. But Wesley never reconciled with Whitfield. As long as Wesley lived, he would never sing Whitfield's version of the song, even though it had become hugely popular. It was like a number one hit, and he'd never sing it. Uh, Today, uh, Wesley, Charles Wesley, could have sued Whitfield for violating copyright laws, but uh, they didn't do that back then. When Wesley published his hymns, he put a note in the front that said, we may no longer be accountable either for the nonsense or the doggerel of other men. Doggerel, that is, fit for the dogs. Now, just think about that for a moment. Wesley was a great man. He was a wonderful man of God. But he wasn't perfect. He knew how to hold a grudge. And aren't you glad that God doesn't hold grudges? Aren't you glad that God makes peace with us? But here, one more P.S. to a P.S. I want to say on this story is, you know what? Who's the George Whitfield in your life or in my life? Is there somebody we're holding a grudge against? And, and, and just think how silly these two great men of God. Think, first of all, how ineffective it was for the revival of the 1700s that two of the top leaders didn't get along with each other. I, I bet... God's kingdom didn't expand as rapidly or as effectively as it should have because of this quarrel between two of its great leaders, okay? And can you imagine these two guys standing before God in heaven, and God says, hey, what was the big deal between you guys anyway? And Wesley goes, well, we changed the first word of my song from let all the welkin rings to hark the herald angels sing. God would go, what? That's so stupid. What? He says, well, not just that, not just that. He took the last four verses off of my song, you know. And God, so I told him to do that. It was boring, okay. I told him. I'm the one that led him to do that. And it wasn't a catchy title. You needed a catchier title, Charles. And you needed it a little bit shorter so people wouldn't fall asleep during it. Um, and think about our Whitfield. You know, is God not working as effectively through us because we're hanging on to these grudges? And you know, the, I, I've seen God use every type of church. I've seen God use small churches, big churches, charismatic churches, non-charismatic churches, uh, traditional churches, contemporary churches. I've seen God use every type of church. The one type of church I've never seen him use is a disunified church. Only time, time he does it use. 
And so we need to unify and, and, and let go uh, any grudges we might have, and not just in church, but at the workplace or in your family. You know, let these things go so that we can unify and be more effective in the main thing, which is having a message and a ministry of reconciliation of people to God and reconciliation between people with each other. Then number three, it teaches us that our worship joins the worship of heaven. Uh, The next verse. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. The Bible says, the multitudes of heaven worship you. In Revelation, it says all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Think of that. Whenever we worship, heaven is worshiping along with us. My goodness, that's an awesome thought. When we worship, heaven is worshiping with us. John and Charles Wesley wrote, beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of it being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan, (laughs) okay? Um, You know, than the bar songs, uh, the drinking songs, uh, you know, sing with all of our heart. We'll sing in church with all of your heart. Now, hardly anybody sings anymore in our society. You notice the last place people sing anymore is in church, I mean, our education programs, music programs are being cut back in the schools. Um, uh, people don't sing the national anthem anymore. You go to a ball game, and now we hire professionals, not to lead us in singing the national anthem, but we hire professionals, so we sit back and then applaud if we think they did a good job. And so nobody sings anywhere. I think, you know, there's a little bit of a tangent, but I think that's why when you have these programs like American Idol and stuff like that, it's amazing how about half of the top ten about half of the people in American Idol all had their backgrounds in church. But it makes sense because it's the only place where people still get experience singing is in church. And so we're the last place where people sing. Now, there are some places. I remember I've told you how Kimberly and I went back uh, to Lambeau Field to the Green Bay Packers game in September. And I tell you, all these people just stood and listened to the national anthem, didn't sing the national anthem. But as soon as it came to the Packers fight song, everybody joined in. Now, it was helped along by copious amounts of alcohol that did assist in the process. But you know the Packers fight song? It's a very inspiring one. Roll out the barrel, we'll have a barrel of fun. Roll out the barrel, we've got the blues on the run. Now you know why they're so successful. They got this awesome fight song. But everybody joined in on that. They didn't care. Ooh, I wonder if I don't look cool with the people around me. I wonder if I hit a bad note. No. They sang, uh, they sang all, all out. It was funny, Kimberly and I were watching one of these crime shows, it was one of the true ones, and uh, this guy, um, no, it was like one of those forensic files where it's actually, you know, one that actually happened and stuff like that, that's what I meant by one of the true ones. And so, at any rate, uh, the guy in it, he, he was saying he didn't commit the crime, but he was admitting that he was running with the wrong crowd, so it wasn't a surprise that they thought he committed the crime, and he was doing bad things, so it wasn't a surprise that they thought, suspected him of committing the crime, but he didn't commit that particular crime. But then he said something that I got a big kick out of. He said, nobody gets in trouble singing too loudly in church. Nobody gets in trouble. And what he meant by that is if you're in the right place, you know, you're probably not going to get in trouble. 
And he says, nobody gets in trouble uh, singing too loud in church. And that's what the Wesley brothers said. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. And I'm not saying NFL fight songs or songs of Satan. Certainly not the Packers fight song. That's a song of heaven is what that song is. Okay. Number four, God understands our humanity. Now here's the next verses where a bunch of theology comes in. Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Please as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Four theological concepts are being taught in this Christmas carol. Christ the everlasting Lord, the first concept, that Jesus is eternally preexistent. That is, Jesus was not created or born in Bethlehem. He was eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. John 1, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Next phrase, offspring of a virgin's womb. Second concept, the virgin birth. How will this be, Mary asked the angel in Luke chapter 1. Since I'm a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Uh, Jesus was called Son of Man, which means he was fully 100% human because he had a human mother. But he was also called Son of God, 100% God, fully God, because his father was God. The Holy Spirit came over uh, Mary in the virgin birth. Larry King was asked, if you could interview anybody, who would you interview? He said, I would choose Jesus Christ, and I would ask him, were you really born of a virgin? Because that would define history for me. Next phrase, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Third concept, the incarnation. Carne means meat, okay? Carne asada is grilled meat, okay? So carne, literally, this is a little bit earthy, but literally the incarnation means God came in meat, okay? He came in carne, incarnation. God came in meat. He took on flesh, John 1.14, the word became flesh, carne, meat, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I love how the message paraphrase puts it. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Next phrase, please as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Fourth concept is his humanity. Bob Russell writes, Jesus didn't come as a pampered monarch. He got dirty. He came to peasant parents. He was vulnerable, breakable, pierceable. So much man that he slept in a boat, but so much God that the wind stopped when he spoke. He was such a man that he wept when Lazarus died but he was so much God that Lazarus came forth when he cried. Number five, God still heals people today. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. In a few moments when we're done, the prayer room is going to be open right off here on the main floor, and the prayer team there, and they would just love to pray with you. We have seen miracles come out of that room. God still heals today. God still does miracles today. And we've seen them happen out of that room in 2015, and I know we'll continue to see them 
in the coming, in the coming year as well. Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Charles Spurgeon writes, When people hear about what God used to do, one of the things they say is, well, oh, that was a very long time ago. I thought it was God that did it. Has God changed? Is he not immutable? God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Does not that furnish an argument to prove that what God has done at one time, he can do at another? Nay, I think I may push it a little further and say what he has done once is a prophecy of what he intends to do again. Whatever God has done is to be looked upon as a precedent. Number six, and with this the band can, and the praise team can start coming up. Jesus has given us eternal life. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. First Peter 1, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Bob Russell writes, if you are born once, you die twice. If you are born twice, you die once. Now, there's one more P.S. to the story, okay, the rest of the story. Almost 100 years go by, and another guy changes Charles Wesley's song. But it's 100 years later, so he's safe now, okay? Wesley's in heaven, so he can't get ticked off, okay? These temperamental musicians, man, I'm telling you, you know. So William Cummings, let's put his picture up there. Uh, the guy on the left, uh, he took the words to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Remember, the words had been changed a bit by Whitfield. So Whitfield gives it a catchier title uh, for first line. Whitfield takes off the last four verses, so it's pithier with three verses instead of seven. And now what Cummings did is he matched the lyrics with a melody from Mendelssohn. And the song skyrocketed to the top of the pop charts in England that uh, particular year. Okay. It goes very popular, and it remains popular to today as Cummings takes the lyrics and uh, connects them with a melody from Mendelssohn, and that's the form the song has for us today. And that's the rest of the story. <laughs>